Welcome to Mill Liberty, the voice of liberty for a new generation. Alright, Joe Walsh, Matt Kitty, John Sasso, welcome to Mill Liberty. Thank you. Yeah, it's good to be back. Hey, Caleb, I mean this. It's great to be with you. Thank you for the invite. This week, we are going to be going over the myths and realities that surround monopolies. Teddy Roosevelt hated, hated small government. The gateway into space will help alleviate a lot of this problem. It was a fateful era we took 100 years ago with this kind of monopolization of banking and centralization of money and credit. Automation, streamlined productivity, and cost-effectiveness. There's two big government parties, and one of them is, is red and one of them is blue. We are creating a community of liberty lovers. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to this week's edition of the Liberty Podcast. This week is going to wrap us up for the year 2019. Um, We're not going to have any more shows this year, uh, but we will be back in January and some uh, really good things that are going to be happening. First of all, if you haven't yet done so, please be sure to subscribe to us. Uh, that really helps us out in uh, everything that we're trying to do here. And if you really love what we are doing, if you really love the content we're making, uh, please go and check us out on Patreon because we have a lot of great things coming up there. I think uh, we are going to be having a special end-of-year recap. Last year we had it here on this show. Um, This year we're going to move that over to the Patreon uh, because we have a lot of things going on uh, here on this show between this month and then early next month in January and next year. Um, I just want to say I am thoroughly, thoroughly thankful for all of your support, um, for everyone who has ever downloaded this episode, for everyone who has ever shared this episode, for everyone who has ever listened to this uh, not this episode, gosh, uh, more than just this episode, obviously, this entire program, um, because this year is not only ending, but this decade is ending. Uh, we started this program way back in 2016, right before the 2016 general election. And uh, let me tell you, it's been quite the whirlwind since then. And if you have been here from the beginning, if you've been along the ride from day one, um, I just want to extend my heartfelt gratitude toward you. Um, we have a lot of great conversations on this program. We've had uh, so many um, different individuals and different ideas being floated around here on this program. I think it's been such a great experience, um, not just for, for you all to listen to to the, the guests that we've been bringing on and the ideas that we've been talking about, but also for me because it's allowed me the chance to really hone in on what it is that I believe. It's not to say that I didn't have a belief system before this, but I've, I've definitely um, cemented it and solidified it in a lot of ways directly because of the program that we have built here. Uh, and I think this has been a great, uh, a great experience for not just everyone who I hope has gotten a lot out of it, but also for a lot of personal growth and development. So I just want to thank you for for being with me on this journey, for being a part of this, uh, for being a part of this community 
of liberty lovers, that, that thing that we've been trying to build from day one. Um, and if you've been listening to this uh, whenever we were over at Outset or whether or not you've been listening to this just a few weeks ago uh, and just picked up, I want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart next year and next uh decade really um i don't know how long this program is going to go on for but uh let me just say that there is an ample amount of opportunity that lies in front of us and in the 2020s i expect nothing but great things to happen um so i am very very excited for you to join me on that journey uh, and trying to make liberty mainstream and make make it uh, something that we can all talk about fluently and and easily uh, to to people who is who might just be normal people. Um, that's sort of the goal is to is to properly communicate this message. And I think a part of that is being accomplished through this program. So once again, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. Another thing that I do want to bring up here is that this week we were originally trying to make a certain interview happen that I haven't haven't yet revealed, uh, but that is going to happen the first interview of 2020 in January. Um, it's going to be something that I'm not quite ready to reveal yet just because I want to make sure all the times and the dates and everything are... Uh, solidified, but it is coming. So be on the lookout for a really, really good kickoff to the new year and the new decade in, in 2020. Um, and be on the lookout on our Twitter um, at Mill Liberty or my my personal Twitter at Caleb Friends. And uh, we'll have some more information about that coming fairly quickly. Uh, and it's going to be something that I promise you, you will not want to miss out on that interview. And I, actually, we have quite a few interviews lined up, I believe, in um, in the new year, in, in January specifically, that will make for quite a great month of content. But with all that being said, I want to get into this week's uh, content and this week's guest as well. Um, this week, we are going to be talking about... Uh, the Afghanistan Papers primarily, uh, as well as we're going to be having a guest who has recently wrote an article, and we'll be getting into that in just a second. But I do want to talk on on this subject uh, briefly before we go into before we go into the interview. Um, we have had a lot of conversations about war and about peace and about. Um, our, America's purpose in, in in this world and what we should be doing in relation to foreign policy. I think there's been a lot of discussion, particularly in this year, because uh, between certain decisions Trump has made um, and certain foreign policy uh, actions that have been taken uh, or that haven't been taken, it's just been a, a good year to discuss foreign policy, not just here on this program, but among our national discourse. And if there is one thing that completely sums up the inefficiency, the waste, and the corruption surrounding the warfare state, it is the Afghanistan war 
Um, that is America's longest war in history, longer than the Vietnam War. I remember I was still in uh, high school, I believe, whenever it broke that record, and it's still uh, it's still moving along just as strong as ever. And that is something that we all have known that we haven't had a good, clear objective of how to win in Afghanistan or even why we're there in the first place. And that is a mistake. The reason why libertarians get so caught up on the issue of war and the reason why, honestly, candidates like Tulsi Gabbard are so appealing to, to libertarians is that war is probably the most important issue that affects literally everyone, regardless of where you are in the world, what your position is. It doesn't matter if it's, if it's affecting you uh, economically. It doesn't matter if it's affecting you personally, as in you're in the war, uh, or you're being affected by the war, as in the war is coming to you, or you have family who uh, is affected by the war. Um, it is costly in uh, measurements in lives, as well as money and resources. Regardless of what it is, there is probably no other issue that is as consequential as war and peace. Some of you, now I don't, I don't think most people who listen to this program are pro-war, um, but some people, I assume might be, um, and, and certainly some people who, uh, most people <laughs> who don't listen to this program are certainly pro-war. And they get caught up on why libertarians uh, get so obsessive over, over this issue. They don't understand why they can't just let things be with, uh, with uh, the foreign policy apparatus. And it is confusing to them. There is no other issue that I can think of other than uh, a few economic issues that strike at the heart of everything that we're trying to accomplish. If you have a, a state of war, the health of the state and the, and the size of the state is constantly growing entirely because of the longevity and the growth of the warfare state. It's not economically conservative. It's not socially liberal. Anything that you care about can be directly uh, attributed to the warfare state. Now, that's not to say that every issue is directly affected by war, but every uh, issue in the macro sense has uh, traces to the warfare state. That is something that everyone, regardless of their political ideology, needs to look at and focus on and I mean, perhaps criminal justice uh, is is perhaps the only other issue that, you know, whereas war literally means life and death, criminal justice literally means uh, freedom versus imprisonment. Um, and those are all things that are wildly important to me. And it is something that we have to get a grip on. Recently, the Afghanistan Papers um, were released by the Washington Post, which were, I think, just embarrassing for the foreign policy apparatus in Washington. 
the Afghanistan Papers, essentially the the sum the the summary of of the Afghanistan Papers, was essentially that. Yeah, the the officials in in Washington that have been pushing for this war and saying, you know, um, things are going great. We're making progress. They were all lying. Every single one of them. And they knew it. It's not that they were being foolish. It's not that they were being, um, it's not like they were trying to paint a glowing picture or trying to be too optimistic. They were intentionally lying to you. And that is something that every single American needs to care about. Now, of course, there are a bunch of things such as impeachment going on and, you know, over uh, across the pond, there is the Brexit uh, issue and there are elections over there that's been taking up a lot of the news cycle. But all of that is, quite frankly, a child's play compared to the warfare state and compared to what, uh, what Washington has been doing in its foreign policy uh, specter. That's something that affects every American. And the fact that the media has chosen to ignore this issue just shows you where exactly people lie who have remotely any sense of power. Now, there have been individuals who have been you know, trying to take this, this issue and, and run with it, take the Afghanistan papers after they were released uh, about a week ago or so and run with it. And um, that's good. I know that Rand Paul has been doing that. Uh, I believe Thomas Massey has been doing that as well. Uh, and that's good. The President of the United States needs to use this as an opportunity to completely withdraw from Afghanistan. There is no better opportunity than now. This will determine whether or not the president is nothing but a bunch of talk when it comes to being non-interventionist versus actually taking the steps that he has constantly said that he believes in and that he wants to take. He's the president of the United States. He has the authority to do this. Yet for some reason he hasn't done so yet. This will provide him for the best opportunity to do that. Now, we're going to talk more about that here in just a moment. Um, our guest this week is Zachary Yost. He is a foreign policy analyst with uh, Young Voices. Uh, Young Voices, who we have worked with uh, very frequently here in this program and has provided many guests that have been really great for this program um, and some of our, our best episodes. And... We uh, discuss a recent article about how the American empire uh, is is crumbling due to the warfare state and due to America's um, militarism that it just cannot give up. And then we transition from that article into what's been going on with the Afghanistan papers. Uh, and it is a really great conversation. So for our last interview of 2019, please enjoy this interview with Zachary Yost. Okay, Zach, welcome to the Maliberty Podcast. I am very happy to have you on board. Uh, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. So uh, I wanted to have you on this week because there's been a few things that's been going on in the news uh, that has been very important that we haven't had the chance to uh, touch on quite yet, but before we get into that, um, you recently wrote an article in the American Conservative, um, and why don't you tell us about that? And before before even telling us about that, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and and uh, get the audience a, a chance to know you? 
Okay, great. Yeah, so I'm Zach Yost. I'm a freelance writer. I live in Pittsburgh. I'm also a foreign policy fellow with Young Voices, which is a nonprofit that uh, helps promote kind of libertarian conservative voices in the media. Um, so yeah, I just write and I do some research on the side and things like that. I used to work in DC at a few places and now I'm back in Pittsburgh. So your article is entitled uh, Thomas Cole and the End of the American Empire. Can you give us the um, the the premise of, of what you were essentially trying to get at? Because it, it seems like there's, there's a lot of overlap between... Um, well, really, there's there's a lot of uh, you know direction pointed toward our uh, military involvement and sort of military spending, uh, military uh, in, in interactions in other countries. Uh, can you can you give us a, a bit of the rundown for that? Sure. So the basic premise of the article, um, I kind of structure it around a five piece series of artwork by the American artist Thomas Cole called The Course of Empire. And the five pieces kind of trace kind of a almost cliche at this point historical narrative of how a society rises up from kind of primitive nothingness up to empire where it, you know, overreaches and ultimately collapses. And so I just look at that and use it to kind of create a narrative about what's happening in America today and, and really over the past hundred years, because Thomas Cole is kind of considered like the founder of what's called the, the Hudson River School of Art, which is a very quintessentially American school of artwork, a lot of landscape paintings. And he was definitely talking about America <laughs> when he uh, well, painted this. And um, so I just kind of go through how the the kind of the core point that uh, Cole makes in his third piece, which is called the um, the consummation of empire, we see kind of the the society he's been examining is now flourishing. It's obviously very wealthy, very militaristic. There's a military parade going by, but down in the corner we see uh, two little boys kind of fighting. One's wearing red, and one is wearing green. And what Cole's doing is kind of foreshadowing the cracks in the foundation of the society that this militaristic empire, this policy of militaristic empire has created. And I think that unfortunately, that is definitely what's been going on here in America. We're very, very divided. In my piece, I cite some research that shows that uh, I think it's uh, a majority of uh, polled voters uh, think that we're two-thirds of the way to the edge of a civil war. We have lower social trust than uh, South Africa, <laughs> which is not exactly a very stable society. And um, so really, I make the argument that at the core of what has caused this kind of social decay is the past century of militarism and uh, intervention all over the globe? Yeah. So, do you think that um, do, do you think that this is sort of inevitable for countries to go through this, or do you think that uh, this is very much something that is preventable? So, I 
definitely do not think that there's anything historically determined (laughs) in that, you know, like the laws of physics, a society is going to, you know, age and die necessarily. That's Mm -hmm. kind of a um, very um, decline of the West kind of view. It's deterministic. I don't think that history happens because of the choices people make. And when those choices are aggregated together, the choices that a society makes as a whole. Uh, On the other hand, uh, there's not a great track record of it not <laughs> happening right so i don't th- i th- what i argue is that uh it's inevitable really just given the track record in human nature that of course the united states is not going to be some eternal polity that exists until the end of time it will end eventually but we don't have to make it end now we can make yeah. choices that would uh stave off that kind of inevitable future so essentially, um, you know, societies, regardless, you know, take America out of out of the societies in general, um, it, it, it's not inevitable for them to to always go through this. But if they make the choices that we have made in other countries and other societies have made in the past, uh, constantly heading toward a more militaristic state, a more uh, interventionist state, then that in and of itself makes it uh, inevitable. Yeah, that it the society cannot withstand the uh, negative consequences and unintended consequences that stem from that kind of action and, and policy, especially over a long period of time. Yeah. So this is really interesting because um, obviously there's there's so much discussion right now. Um, it it seems like every every month it, that we can't you know go by a, a full month without having some form of conversation surrounding um, our, our place in the world, uh, America's place in the world, and um, how far we're being stretched, how many wars we're getting involved into, uh, and that is no different than uh, many other societies that have come and gone um, well before America. Do you think that, what, what in your opinion is the, I guess, biggest cause that, uh, that crumbles the empire each time do you think it's the fact that our forces are stretched so thin do you think that it's the um exorbitant amount of of money that that we're spending on these things or do you think it's some form of a combination of of a multitude of factors that that calls for that to happen so i would argue that the the kind of quintessential cause is the um crumbling of uh, civil society that results from militarism. And this isn't an argument original to me. The best case is put forward by a sociologist named Robert Nisbet in a very short book. It's available online free from Liberty Fund if anyone's interested. It's called The Present Age. And Nisbet makes the argument that uh, militarism leads to a lot of um, kind of dissolving of the social bonds and connections that people in a society have. Uh, There's a loosening of morals. Uh, The state centralizes power. Power in a healthy society is dispersed among different institutions, the four largest kind of groupings being the state, 
the church, the market, and the family. But when there's a war, the state needs to centralize power to face the threat. And what we've had in the United States is practically 100 years of uh, kind of a, a warfare mentality of one kind or the other. And so not only are these other institutions very weakened across society, which uh, there's just, I think it was by Pew just did a study. Uh, the United States has the largest percentage of single parent households in the entire world. Uh, so that's just like one example. Divorce rates, things like that, uh, I think can easily be attributed to causes that have a root in this militaristic mindset. Um, yeah, that's that's a uh, that's a really good point that I really hadn't considered before. But now that you you sort of bring it up, it it is um, kind of obvious because when you look back at all the instances of 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 great conflict, of course, like you've alluded to, we've sort of constantly been in a state of war since uh, for over a hundred years. Um, but each time that that conflict especially gets inflamed, uh, World War One, World War Two, even after 9-11, um, we typically think of those times as somewhat unifying, but I think that has more to do with the sort of romanticizing of those, those eras where we all get immensely patriotic, um, because I typically look at those times as that's those are the moments that uh, people aren't really allowed to be dissenting. They're not allowed to have uh, free speech. They're not allowed to have their privacy. Uh, you get this inherent distrust of of fellow Americans, whether it be based on their nationality or their skin color or um, or just their political beliefs in general. Um, and all of that is is inevitably traced back to. To the warfare state. Yeah, and that the the sociology finds that when there is a society or a group faces an external threat, then internal group cohesion increases. So World War One, World War Two, the Cold War, uh, we had lots of disagreements, but to some extent, Americans generally thought this is necessary to kind of pull together to face this external threat. Right. Now, you cannot seriously make the case that there is any external existential threat to the United States in the way like a, the Cold War would have been or, or something like that. And right. so the then Nazis what happens... Or something, yeah, something like yeah, that. Sociologically, uh, then the internal group cohesion decreases and disagreements... Um, that were kind of shoved under the rug and given less importance become more important. But a key difference has changed in that over the past hundred years of um, a kind of facing external threats, the state has centralized a lot of power. So now all that threat's gone, but the state still has a ton of power. And it kind of creates this very bad incentive structure where if if my group doesn't control the state, which now has all the power that's been sucked up over the course of a hundred years, my group might be punished. And uh, I think we see that with uh, kind of a lot of religious concerns, um, uh, things like that. Uh, just <laughs> every election is now the most important yeah. election <laughs> ever because I think people think, you know, 
who knows what they'll do when they have all the power. If I right. don't have that power, it can be used against me. So it's kind of a defensive thing to acquire power. But then, you know, it. I think that's probably at the heart of why uh, we're getting increasingly more and more divided seemingly every week. So, um, obviously, as, as I mentioned before, I, I wanted to bring you on to discuss this article, but I also thought that this article was a nice little segue into something else uh, fairly large that has occurred recently that not a lot of people are um, providing adequate attention, uh, I would say. And that is the release of the Afghanistan Papers. And um, for anyone listening who hasn't uh, maybe stayed up to, to date on this, um, the Washington Post released um, essentially a report that clearly indicates that officials in, in the United States uh, military and the military-industrial complex, uh, they lied about uh, about America's success in in the war in in the Afghanistan war um, constantly for the past uh, really 18 years, and that is really a, a pretty big bombshell that not a lot of people are talking about. So I want to go over that with you. Uh, what what are what are some of your initial uh, thoughts and and takes on on this release of this report? Uh, well. There's not really anything surprising to me or to most people who have been paying attention to the war and who have been critical of it. Um, the, the Afghanistan papers were compiled by SIGAR, the Special Inspector General uh, for Afghanistan Reconstruction, which for about 11 years now <laughs> have had the pleasant job of going around auditing all the billions of dollars in development aid we put in it, writing quarterly reports for Congress that are always pretty gloomy and dreary and saying everything's going terribly. Uh, this is not, nothing's new here in terms of what the officials interviewed are saying in terms of we didn't know what we we're doing, this is a giant mess. The only kind of thing that's really new is that we now have definitive proof that uh, all of the officials who have been saying everything's going great, they weren't complete idiots. Right, they which, intentionally they actually, knew. <laughs> yeah. Yes, they knew what was wrong. Right. They just were lying to us for 18 years. So right. that's really, to me, the only revelation. To everyone who doesn't spend their free time perusing cigar reports, uh, <laughs> it, maybe some of the things they're saying are shocking in terms of how terrible everything's going in Afghanistan. But to me, the main takeaway is, yeah, they were lying to us and we have unquestionable proof of that. Right. And I think that is obviously the, the big takeaway for, for most people, um, just the I guess the honesty now that they have been uh, lying, and, and they're not no longer trying to pull a pull a charade over uh, our eyes because this has been uh, America's longest war. It's been something that has greatly hindered our whether it be you know budgets or whether it be national security. Um, so it has so many different you know tentacles that it it uh, it wraps itself around uh, that it should have a really good, solid explanation for itself um, if it's to justify its own existence, yet now they're saying 
actually, no, we don't even have that. Yeah, and it, uh, I think that it's kind of, uh, you mentioned that there's not a ton of talk about it, and I think that's due to several factors. One being, there's a lot going on right now. The UK election was right when this was released. The impeachment trial, obviously. The Inspector General's report about the FISA court during the, the Trump campaign and things like that. There's a lot going on. But you'd think that it might be viewed as a little more scandalous that you know we've been pouring hundreds of billions of dollars into the dirt for nothing thousands of people of Americans have been killed and tens and tens of thousands of Afghan civilians have been killed for something that our leaders secretly <laughs> in private acknowledge is a, a pointless waste that we don't know where it's going. So, I mean, I'm kind of, it is a little disheartening that there's not more outrage, but I've kind of come to expect that having kind of followed this, uh, you know, these issues for a while now right do you see um any sort of positive uh end state with this do you do you, do you see this maybe maybe not gripping the public per se but the right officials in in washington um or just in in government in general uh who do actually care about these issues do you think that will be enough to sort of push the envelope on uh trying to actually end this war well, I have very little hope that any evidence will really change what's called the, the foreign policy blob uh, kind of mindset in D.C. Um, I think that those people, especially the career people who've been there for decades, it's kind of the U.S. running the world, or at least attempting to, is just how things must be. Um, what I do think that this... Uh, your release will be helpful with is giving critics of American empire ammunition, basically to discredit people who are <laughs> pushing. We, we keep staying in there. For instance, a fellow named Michael O'Hanlon, who uh, I believe um, is high up in the foreign policy kind of department at the Brookings Institute. When the Washington post published this, he had the gall <laughs> to, to write, uh, an essay on the Brookings website basically attacking the, the, the Washington Post for daring to, to call all of our brave leaders liars and things like that. <laughs> so to me, anytime he says anything, uh, and he, he thinks we need to stay in Afghanistan, of course, sure. I think that anyone just needs to trot that out and say, look, this person is not a credible person. We, we should stop listening to them. And here's the one kind of hope I have. And I should have an article coming about uh, out about this later this week, hopefully. But um, is that Trump uses this opportunity to just do it, just yeah. pull everyone out of Afghanistan. And there's, I think in a way, this is the perfect moment to do it. And he might not have uh, this kind of opportunity again. For one thing, kind of the whole national security apparatus is currently discredited in the eyes of roughly half the country, probably, due to the kind of impeachment circus that's, even if Trump was wrong, how it's been handled is a joke. Uh, the IG report finding that, yeah, the FBI was lying to spy on American citizens, things like that. Now we have the Afghanistan papers. 
I think that Trump should just do it. He he's <laughs> I can't really contemplate any other politician doing it, but it doesn't seem too crazy. And the the Defense Department also doesn't think it's too crazy either, because earlier this year they started developing contingency plans in the event Trump just said, pull everyone out because they were worried he might do that. So they've already started working on the plans, at least this was months ago. So maybe they're done by now. But I think that now's the time for Trump to just say, let's go. We're coming home. I think not only would that be great for the country, uh, but I think it would also definitely help him uh, during re-election because he can trumpet loudly and say, I kept my promise. And he also, <laughs> I doubt he was reading cigar reports, but uh, <laughs> I found way back in 2012, he, he flat out said, we don't know what we're doing in Afghanistan. We should come home. The Afghans are robbing us blind. Yeah. Um, so I think he actually has shown uh, some consistency in thinking that this is a bad idea. And I think uh, all of his previous attempts to kind of withdraw our forces from the Middle East have been thwarted kind of by the, the blob. Uh, you know, the president can say do this, but if the people don't do it, then, you know, the president has a lot less authority than uh, is commonly believed. And this is how the term the blob originated, because Obama discovered this uh, before as well. But now I think the blob, its credibility is weakened, at least for the moment. Right, yeah, and I think that is going to be the true test or the true question uh, whether or not uh, Trump does anything about this because he's had a lot of a lot of talk, has had a lot of good lip service surrounding, you know, ideas that non-interventionists generally believe. Um, about you know how wasteful the wars are, how how costly it is for not just uh, American dollars but American lives, uh, and he said a lot of good things about Syria and and uh, and a lot of uh, other regions, but it hasn't been backed up too much by a lot of action. Um, and Afghanistan is probably the quintessential example of how something with the best of intentions just got twisted to this creature that is virtually unrecognizable today uh, compared to what it was back in 2001. So if if this isn't enough to sort of push him over over the edge and and say like, look, this is it's time to bring everyone home. Um, it's time to start the the process of withdrawing. Then, um, then yeah, that's that's going to be really tough for for his credibility, and it's going to be really tough for his, I think, re-election campaign as well. If if uh, war issues really uh, take center stage, um, as they oftentimes do during election cycles, and he he definitely needs to stop shooting himself in the foot with the people he's appointing in his administration. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah was flummoxed when he appointed um, John Bolton yes. as his national security advisor. Yeah. I mean, I maybe keep your enemies close kind of thing, but I, that made zero sense to me. And he needs to stop kind of doing those kind of own goal type of appointments if he's going to get anywhere, I think. Yes, I, I agree completely. Um, Zach, we're, we're running uh, short on time here, but uh, I, I do want to give you the opportunity to uh, plug in any of your work um, and your your social media to give people the chance to check you out and to, to follow you there. 
Oh, great. Thanks. Um, so I write a lot for the American Conservative and the Mises Wire. You can check out uh, all my writing there. Um, you can follow me on Twitter. It's just at Zachary Yost. I don't tweet a ton, but uh, <laughs> I post <laughs> articles there when they're published and things like that. Right. Okay. Well, um, Zach, I, I appreciate you coming on, and I think this has been a really good discussion. It's definitely been a really important discussion. Um, I think this is one of the, the the more important, if not the most important, issues that we can be discussing as as a as a nation, and certainly within liberty circles. Um, so, thanks a lot for coming on, and we'll have to have you on again real soon. Thanks so much for having me. And that's going to do it for us for this week's and this year's edition of the Mill Liberty Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I want to thank Zachary for uh, joining me on, um, on the program this week. Please tune back in on January. I want to get this right. I believe it's January 9th. Um, yes, January 9th will be our uh, return to the program, and hopefully, if it all works out well, which I believe uh, it's looking like it will, uh, we will have a very, very good and very important, very special guest on the program, so be on the lookout for that, and then I hope you have a very Merry Christmas, I hope you have a very Happy New Year. Uh, check out for the uh, look out for the Patreon because we're gonna have some more content there. If you want some more content for um, the Liberty, which you can join for as little as five dollars a month, uh, and please be sure to follow me on Twitter at Caleb Franz. Be sure to follow the show on Twitter at Mill Liberty. Follow the organization on Twitter at Mill Liberty Org, and check us out on Facebook at the Mill Liberty Initiative. And then, of course, be sure to subscribe to the program and share it around with all your friends and family. Let's make 2020 a great year. And until then, we'll see you.